Hello, humans. Hello, humans. Hello, humans of the world. It's me, Ellie Krug. Ellie 2.0 Radio on lovely AM 950. It is me, and it is me live. You get to have my actual voice as it's being transmitted out of my mouth and uh, via my brain. Well, we'll see sometimes. Uh, Sometimes the mouth precedes the brain. At any rate, I'm here. I am thrilled to be talking with you live. This is, in the span of nearly three years of this show, this is only the third time we've ever been live with it. So uh, um, so there you go. If I sound excited, maybe even a little giddy, that's because I am. We have a great show, too, by the way. Um, the big interview uh, is with Mary Frances Winters, author of a brand new book, Black Fatigue. Uh, which just literally came out uh, about two weeks ago. She's also um, uh, someone who does what I I do. She trains and advocates for greater inclusivity um, in workplaces and across the world. And um, before that, I mean, first, you know, I'm going to talk about uh, being the idealist I am. We're going to explore some of the origins of today about indigenous people. And I would love to hear from you. I really would. I mean, I don't ever get to speak to listeners. So if you've ever been wondering why is her voice so deep or why is she so unbashedly idealistic in a world that is so negative at times, call me. Let's have a conversation about that. Number is 952-946-6205. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear... I don't get to do live shows very often, and I love speaking to listeners. So please call me, 952-946-6205. All right. So we are here today, Monday, the 12th of October, Indigenous Peoples Day, formerly known as Columbus Day. But, uh, you know, um, I want to talk about how it is that we got to calling it Indigenous Peoples Day. And some of what I'm going to share is from an October 2019 University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Professor Professor Melinda Lowry's interview um, with someone. She is the director of the UNC's Center for the Study of the American South. And I'm also going to be using some information from the Smithsonian National Museum uh, of the American Indian. So the first documented Columbus Day that ever took place occurred in 1792 in New York City on what was then, of course, the 300th anniversary of Columbus landing in the West Indies. Then, 70 years later, in 1869, um, uh, this day became a day of celebrating Italian-American heritage in San Francisco. Remember, Columbus uh, was Italian. He was in the service of Queen Isabella of Spain. Toward the late 1800s, President Benjamin Harrison, who, by the way, was a one-term president uh, between 1889 and 1893, um, I'm hopeful that we will soon have another one-term president added to that list. Um, In the late 1880s, President Harrison proposed a national celebration as a way of honoring descendants of all those who had immigrated to the U.S. So that was really about uh, trying to, um, in some way, uh, make it so that Columbus Day was about people who had immigrated. Fast forward to 1934, when FDR was president, he declared that the first he declared the very first real national observance of Columbus Day said that it would happen on every October 12th. Um, And that came about after lobbying by New York City's Italian community. Remember uh, that in in, uh, the 1930s, uh, Ferrillo LaGuardia was New York's mayor. And the Knights of Columbus, which was heavily influenced by uh, Italian uh, ancestry people. And so Columbus Day really took hold nationally in uh, 1934. So now, then uh, 30 years later, President Nixon changed uh, the date of the holiday uh, to the second Monday in October. Okay, so now there has always been opposition to Columbus Day with the Native American community, the American Indian community. And, you know, think about this, about how celebrating the day of a man 
who um, enslaved uh, West Indians. He did. He, he brought back people from the Caribbean back to Spain as enslaved humans. <clears throat> so, and then, of course, um, his exploration spurred all kinds of genocide in the Bahamas as well as um, in the United, you know, what became the United States. So think about you being um, American Indian and knowing that the day of <clears throat> an enslaver Somebody who engaged in genocide was celebrated um, in the country in which you lived. Think about that. Think about how it weighed on you. So the American Indian communities always opposed Columbus Day. Um, And then as the civil rights movement in the South uh, was building in the 50s and 60s, American Indians began to assert their rights um, in what was known as the Red Power Movement. Of course, we've heard of the Black Power Movement. It was the Red Power Movement, um, which worked to make American Indian people more politically active. Now, in the beginning, really, of um, Indigenous Peoples Day came in the late 1980s when South Dakota passed a resolution to celebrate Indigenous people. Now, that was just to celebrate Indigenous people. It wasn't to put it on a particular day on the calendar. Um, you know, and at first when I read that, I thought, well, wait a minute, South Dakota isn't very liberal. Uh, but then I uh, read a little bit further and then realized um, that South Dakota has a very large American Indian population. So it would be fitting that Indigenous Day um, really did uh, arrive from South Dakota. But it wasn't until 1992, on the 500th anniversary of of Columbus's arrival. I mean, I don't know. Why do we wait till these anniversary dates? Why don't we just do things? But it wasn't until 1992 that someone said, let's replace Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day. And that's exactly what happened in uh, the hotbed of liberalism, Berkeley, California, in 1992. So since 1992, there have been many cities and 15 states and the District of Columbia that have come to recognize Indigenous Peoples Day. Here in Minnesota, it's kind of still getting billed with Columbus Day, so I think that we have to work on it. I suspect that if the election goes to um, Joe Biden, we will see in the next four years after that um, national abandonment of Columbus Day altogether. I, I believe that. And then, of course, that would be a good thing. It would also be reflective of how we are coming along as a country, step by step, changing attitudes, righting wrongs, and doing what we need to get America to actually live up to its promise. Um, And, you know, uh, recall Dr. King's saying that the arc of history bends toward justice. Um, Indigenous Peoples Day is an example of exactly how um, the arc of history is bending. It is. So I'd like to hear from you. What do you think about this? I mean, do you want to just stick with uh, it being called Columbus Day or is it okay with you that uh, we call it and that we replace Columbus Day and call it Indigenous Peoples Day? I'd love to hear from you about that. My number is 952-946-6205. And... um, Yeah, let's start a little bit of a discussion about that. Now, whether anybody will call, I don't know. Usually when I do these live shows, no one calls until the last five minutes. And I'm going to tell you, if you wait, you're not going to be able to talk to me because we're going to be doing the big interview for the last 20 minutes of the show. So if you want to talk to Willie Krug, this one chance that you get, um, this is your chance to do it. Okay, well, uh, I'm going to wait for the phone to ring. And I think that we'll go ahead and take a little bit of a break right now. And when we come back, um, we'll talk a little bit about my experience of being a transgender woman, having had a relationship with a Native American. So you're listening to me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0 Radio. Um, If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ellie Krug. When we come back from our break, we will talk with whomever gives us a call. Bye-bye. Considering replacing your vacuum, what do you do with the old one? Throw it in the garage? Worse yet, throw it in the garbage? How about trade it in and save? A1 Vacuum in Roseville has been around forever, and they take trade-ins. 
When you trade in your old vacuum, you save. So if it's time to replace that old clunker headed for the garage or landfill, bring it in to A1 Vacuum in Roseville. You can find A1 Vacuum at a-1vacuum.com or call 651-222-6316. When you need legal assistance, let the Minnesota Lawyer and Referral Information Service help you find the right attorney. It's a new and enhanced program of the Hennepin and Ramsey County Bar Associations. They have professional, experienced referral counselors who can connect you to vetted attorneys practicing in employment, real estate, wills, taxes, and much more. Take the stress out of finding a lawyer. Call 612-752-6699 or go to mnlawyerreferral.org. The right call for the right lawyer. Looking for something to spruce up the walls in your new room? How about a live art auction featuring artists from the St. Paul Art Collective? October is Art Month, and they've planned events all month long to bring artists and art lovers together. Visit all your favorite Lower Town artists and find a few new favorites by visiting stpaulartcollective.org and on Facebook at St. Paul Art Collective. They've also added an online auction, which is a fundraiser for both artists and the St. Paul Art Collective. The St. Paul Art Collective has been supporting local Minnesota artists since 1977. Find more details at stpaulartcollective.org and on Facebook at St. Paul Art Collective. That's stpaulartcollective.org and on Facebook at St. Paul Art Collective. Food Freedom Radio is generously supported by Seward Co-op, now offering online ordering and pickup at both the Franklin and Friendship stores. Shop online at seward.coop slash curbside and then pay over the phone. Just call when you arrive at the store for pickup. It's that easy and safe. Offering dedicated pickup times for our first responders, seniors, and those with compromised immune systems from 1 to 2 p.m. Start your shopping at seward.coop slash curbside. Stay safe. We're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. I put out a shout-out to the universe to get some callers, and we've got callers, what do you know, on my live show. All right, I've got Kathleen on the line from Minneapolis. You wanted to talk to me about the quote that I just used about Dr. King. Hi, Kathleen. Yes, hello. How are you? Hello, Ellie. I'm fine. Um, I just want to say that the quote, the arc of the moral universe is long but bends towards justice, uh, is did not originate with Martin Luther King. Ah. It's something that Theodore Parker, a 19th century Unitarian minister, wrote, a Unitarian minister who was also an abolitionist. But he wrote that. And I remember listening to a speech by Martin Luther King on Kinshasa Kambui's program, program on KFAI. And I finally heard him say it as though he had originated it. Because I've heard him... I, give attribution to other people from whom he's copied what he has said, but he never attributed that statement okay. to um, Theodore Parker. Well, I, you know what? I appreciate that. And, you know, uh, I do because, heck, I've, I'm always learning. And I Good. will tell you, Kathleen, I've written down Theodore Parker's name because Theodore Parker sounds kind of like an idealist to me. So I'm going to read up on Theodore Parker. And maybe uh, my show... Uh, he may be showing up as somebody that I will highlight as a historical idealist. I really appreciate you calling in, and I appreciate you helping with that. I really do. Okay. Well, I appreciate you. Okay. Acknowledge it. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening, and thanks thanks for wanting to be involved. I appreciate it. Okay. I've got uh, on the line also Jan. So, Jan, we've been talking about this being Indigenous Peoples Day. And uh, you wanted to talk with me about your experience as um, a Native person. Yes? Yes, I did. And, you know, um, I grew up in Pipestone, Minnesota. I'm Native American, but I was a resident at Pipestone. But back in the day, I'm 83 years old, but back in the day, Hmm. um, the uh, government used to take 
Native children yep. away from their families, um, not with their permission, but they would just kind of round up children. Yep. And they were they were taken down to Pipestone and put in an Indian school. These children were as young as five years old. The parents were not notified. Um, they were put in the Indian schools and they stayed there until they were probably in the seventh or eighth grade. I don't really remember. And from there, they were sent to Flandreau, South Dakota, which was about 18 miles away. And they were kept there until they were released at age 18 um, and given $20 apiece and sent to um, the nearest city from where they came from. And the Indian children were taken from Minnesota, Wisconsin, North and South Dakota, Iowa, Nebraska, and they were sent uh, with their $20 to the nearest town or state from where they came. Um, so, these children, yep. these children, um, I used, as I said, I lived in Pipestone, and these children were brought there, and I went out to the Indian school every day after I got out of school, and it was a mile away from town, and these children were kept in dormitories, and at night when the lights went out, they had a, like um, army army style cots in these dormitories for kids. And when the lights went out at night, one child would start to cry, and pretty soon they were all crying because they were lonesome. They were homesick. Right. So and it's a terror and. and Lots of them would run away, and there was only one highway out of Pipestone, which went north, and that's where they went. And when they were apprehended, they were punished. So, Jan, I'm going to... I'm yeah. going. Jan, I'm going to stop you, and I just want to... First of all, I want to thank you for calling, and I want to thank you for helping to remind us of the horrors the horrors that white people, white color people, inflicted on Native Americans. The That's I- right. The idea, the idea of taking children from humans, from their parents, unfortunately... Well, that's exactly un- what Donald Trump has uh, done down on the border. Yeah, and you beat me to it, but that's exactly where I was leading. And so, um, you know, it's an old playbook of... You know, of, of of oppression, it really is. And you begin by breaking the bonds that people have, and, and blood bonds are um, are the strongest bonds that humans know. So, um, listen, I really appreciate you you giving me a call, and I appreciate you enlightening us to that experience. And I I've got to imagine that it was hard on you, and you know, you've been carrying this, of course, for a very long time, as do as do um, Native Americans as a, as a people carry this. There are so many... I want to add one more thing. Can you do it quickly? That 20, yep, go that, ahead. Yes, I will. That, that $20 got them to a bus station in downtown Minneapolis or St. Paul or Chicago or Omaha or wherever it was, and um, that led to an alcohol problem with the Indian people, and... Um, well, you know, where do you go? You've lost your culture, your family, your friends. You've lost everything, and you you end up with twenty dollars on the street. Yep. So, thank you, America or United States. Okay. Um, you well, got you made the problem. Now you try to fix. it. Well, that's exactly right. We created the problem, Jan, and we white colored people have an obligation to fix the problem. That is what we have to do. There's no question about that. And uh, I appreciate you calling. I will tell you, listeners, you know, um, it's, it's, it's not a whole lot, but to call it Indigenous People's Day certainly is something that we can do. Now, of course, the Indian schools have been outlawed, and, but 
You know, the, Jan raises a, a really critical point, and I, we're going to, in a little bit, we're going to probably hear this echoed um, from uh, someone about the black community, and that is this. When the messaging from society in general is that you are lesser, that you do not matter, that you are not one of quote-unquote us, when that messaging is heard over and over and over, it seeps into you. It does. And so it's no surprise that we have people that are depressed and people that are despondent, people who turn to addiction as a way to cope. When you are regularly told by society that you are lesser, And so, unfortunately, that messaging continues to be echoed in a variety of ways right now in America, in a variety of ways. And um, part of the work, part of the reason, no, no, almost all of the reason why I do my work and I'm an idealist is because we have to get beyond that kind of messaging. We have to get beyond what we do to make people other. So, all right, we've got a little bit of time. If you want to call in for one last call at 952-946-6205, that would be great. Um, And in the little bit we have left, unless somebody calls, I'm just going to share with you this. I mean, hopefully everyone understands I am transgender, okay? The name is Ellie Krug. I know I sound like a dude. If you're on Facebook right now, you know, I'm not looking too bad with long blonde hair. Um, But... um, I've had the experience of dating, of having a relationship. Actually, the very first relationship I ever had after I transitioned genders was with a Native American woman um, who uh, taught me a great deal about uh, Native culture. One of the things that really touched me was that um, the Native community, American Indian community, really respects transgender people. They accorded some significance in the community as two-spirit. And, um, and so it was quite wonderful for me to have this relationship with this American Indian woman. It didn't, in the end, didn't go anywhere. Um, but what was quite wonderful was that um, uh, her family had no problems with me. And she asked me to become involved in her community a little bit. She was involved with um, helping to feed people on every Sunday at a church in um, Powderhorn area. And um, it, was all, it was nothing that she had a transgender woman accompanying her who um, sounded like a dude but looks like a chick. Um, no one even batted an eye about it. I'm going to tell you something. Outside of the Native American community, the fact that my voice doesn't match my appearance is a problem for many people. I'm very used to getting what I call the look that reminds me that I am other. So in that regard, I am very, very um, grateful um, and uh, to Native Americans for the fact that I am, that transgender people like me are accepted. Hmm. Interesting. A marginalized group being willing to accept without question other marginalized people. Pretty revolutionary idea, don't you think? Okay. All right. So we're going to take a break here, and then um, we're going to do the big interview with Mary uh, Frances Frances Winters uh, and talk about her new book, Black Fatigue, and about what it means to be black in America right now. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. If you like what you hear, tune in every Tuesday just like this because I'd love for you to become a regular listener. We'll be back in a sec. Ahu, this is Robert Pilot, Wakunja Hade of Native Roots Radio presents I'm Awake. And I want to tell you about two Native shows on AM 950. Please listen to Rock the Vote Native Style on Tuesdays, 2 to 3 p.m. On Sundays, we have the Sunday Native Symposium, 6 to 8 p.m., commercial free. Guests from all over Turtle Island and local politicians. That's Rock the Vote Native Style, Tuesdays, 2 to 3 p.m. And the Native Symposium, Sundays, 6 to 8 p.m. 
In the Army National Guard, family means everything. They really appreciate what she's done as a sister as well as a soldier and, you know, supporting their country. Our parents, they were really supportive that all five of us would join. Family members that are soldiers in the Army National Guard inspire and influence, setting a path for others. It's validating knowing that, you know, I kind of did my part to make sure this is what they actually wanted and that they feel the same way I do. I'm really proud that we get to help shape the future and I know that my sisters are going to be amazing soldiers. Serving part-time in the Army National Guard instills pride that you and your family will share in. A lot of pride and they're just out there doing something every day and then serving their country as well. I got my education because of the Guard. I got to travel a little bit and experience a whole different culture. Visit NationalGuard.com to learn more about part-time service. Sponsored by the Minnesota Army National Guard. Aired by the Minnesota Broadcasters Association and this station. As a family-owned business, Standard Heating and Air Conditioning has been serving the Twin Cities since 1930. A new furnace or air conditioner from Standard Heating and Air can lower your monthly utility bills, administer more consistent temperatures, and even improve indoor air quality, making your home safer and healthier for the whole family. The average heating and cooling system lasts 15 to 20 years. So if yours is on its last legs, call Standard Heating and Air Conditioning. Learn more at standardheatingdeals.com. Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, the comfort you deserve. How long till my soul gets it right? Can any human being ever reach that kind of light? I call on the resting soul of Galileo, king of night vision, king of inside. And we're back on AM 950 LE 2.0 Radio. Okay, everyone. Well, this is the time for the big interview, and I have on the line with me uh, Mary Frances Winters, who is uh, both a a writer as well as uh, an inclusion advocate, uh, somebody who goes around doing the kind of work that I do, speaking and training about how humans can get past racism and other things. Mary Frances, are you there? I am here. Thank you so much for having me. uh, Welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. I am just thrilled to have you here. Um, I uh, found out about your book, and as soon as I found that out, I'm like, okay, we need to have her on the show. So your book, Black Fatigue, uh, with a a subtitle of How Racism Erodes the Mind, Body, and Spirit, came out, what, about a couple of maybe three weeks ago, yes? September 15th. Okay, all right. Well, we're just about a month out. And so um, this is a book. uh, Can you explain to us what the book is about? I mean, the title, of course, helps. And then I absolutely want to talk about your work. Yeah, thank you so much. The book is about the intergenerational fatigue, this malaise that that, um, Black people have as a result of over 400 years of fighting for um, equity um, in this country, um, a place that we haven't gotten yet. And so it's intergenerational. Um, There are studies that show that the stress that we carry, the extra stress gets into our cellular system and actually does get passed down uh, from generation to generation. Okay. Well, that is, that's a lot, of course. Um, We just got, you know, um, I know that you just came on the show now, but the first half of the show was talking about Indigenous People Day. Yes. Um, and um, we had a caller call in, Jan, to talk about, you know, the Indian schools and how children were taken away from their families um, and, you know, the horrors that uh, white uh, people – I refer to white people as white color people because most white people don't believe white's a color. Um, but, the, <laughs> you know, the horror that white color people, you know, inflicted on – you know, Native Americans, indigenous people, and and how that, you know, for indigenous people, how that weighs on them. I mean, you know, the messaging from society is that you are lesser. And so let's carry that over to the to the black community. You know, you've got, I mean, you, you the black community shares, of course, with indigenous people, the, the, the kind of oppression that goes back hundreds of years. But for the black community, um, you know, the, the idea that you were considered property for so long, um, just generations. Talk to us yeah. about that. Yeah, absolutely. And so in writing the book, um, it was difficult for me to just confine it to black people. Um, I chose a title Black Fatigue because, you know, I could have said black, indigenous, people of color fatigue. Um, and in the book, I do acknowledge that um, there are other subordinated groups that absolutely 
um, and uh, indigenous people in this country. You know, we uh, you just had the last segment on that, and we know the ramifications and the manifestations um, uh, of that. So I do want to get give honor to uh, the first people uh, who were uh, in this country and experienced uh, colonization. Uh, it it is um, it it is really mind boggling to think that we think we've made progress and then we see things like over the last few weeks the executive orders that have come out that say we cannot even do this kind of training which has been labeled as being divisive and anti-american quite the contrary the work that we do is all about america mm-hmm. living up living up to what it is what it espouses that all people are created equal no doubt about that. And and I want to talk about the executive order. But before we do that, can you talk more about, you know, how this um, messaging from society over, you know, hundreds of years has seeped into, uh, for black people, the psyche? And and how is that, how does that show up on a day-to-day basis for, for, black, for black folks? Yeah, so sometimes it shows up as internalized oppression, like all of the negative stereotypes become internalized and you don't even recognize that you have accepted this these ideas um, that you're less than this deficit uh, mindset this idea that um, because you're black there's only so much you can do there's you know because the powers that be are so much uh, against you Uh, on the other hand um, I think there is also a groundswell of, of people f- for generations who have held hope, you know, who have been resilient, who have been strong. But therein lies the black fatigue, the extra work that you have to do to stay positive, to stay strong, because at every turn, practically, you know, there's something that's trying to that's trying to pull you back. But we see this in small children. We see this in, mm-hmm. in elementary school yep. children where the, the internalized oppression, uh, the self-fulfilling prophecy, if, if you will, you don't expect much of me so i'm not going to uh, i'm not going to, to to give much the black doll experiment uh, that was done in the 40s and then repeated a few years ago that showed that black children black preschool children will pick the white doll as the better doll will pick the white doll as the smarter doll the white doll as the prettier mm-hmm. doll and so it starts early uh this sense of not being as good as well you know it's interesting i, I have a uh, I've been a mentor uh, through Big Brothers, Big Sisters, and then on our own to a biracial girl. We started when she was seven. She's now 15, going on 25. Um, but she identifies as black. And I vividly remember two things about my experience with her. First is she picked up all on her own um, and asked me a question one day. Ellie, why is it when there are you know, um, people accused of crimes on TV that they only show the black people and they don't show the white people Mm. as the criminals. And then I remember her telling, and she has said that this to me several times, is that I wish I was right. I was white, Ellie. Everything Mm. would be easier for me. Everything would be better because white people have it better. And so, you know, and, and, and it turned, you know, I, my counter messaging to her has always been, you are darn smart. You are such a smart person. You are going to do great in the world. You just got to hang in there and keep plugging away and I'll do my best to be, you know, your ally. But how do we get people past that messaging? I think we have to do just what you're doing. We have to keep um, ta- we have to turn that deficit message around. We have to keep the positive messages going and not just, um, you know, we do it at the inter- individual level. We do it at the interpersonal level, but we have to do it at the at the systemic level as well and not accept the disproportionality, not accept, for example, 19 percent of the preschool children in this country are black and 46 percent of the preschool children who are suspended or expelled from preschool mm-hmm. are black. Right. Now, how are you going to suspend a preschool kid? They're less than five years old. <laughs> I mean, isn't there another way? And don't we, and, and, and to be able to say that is not acceptable. We're not going to do that. We're not going to have this outcome next year. We're not going to have this outcome the next time because we're going to look at the root. That's what systemic racism does. We're going to look at the roots. We're going to look at why this is happening and we're going to turn it around. No questions asked. We're going to do that. So, yeah. So why do white colored teachers have far less patience for uh, children with skin colors other than white? I mean, that's, I mean, we, it, it is, 
And, and so it goes all the way back to how are we teaching our teachers, you know, and how are we selecting our teachers and, and, and all the messaging they get about skin color as well. So um, I wanted to ask you, I mean, in your book, you write that black children grow up too fast. And what, what do you mean by that? And, and how does that manifest? It's something um, that the uh, experts call adultification. Um, and so they've done a number of different studies and different academic institutions have done these studies. So they're not just coming out of one place where they find that uh, black boys are seen as older than their age. And so if they're nine years old, um, they're really seen as being 13 or 14 um, years old. And that's why the criminal justice system uh, treats them um, you know, more severely than they would um, than they would a white kid. Um, black girls are seen in this one study that they did are not seen as needing as much nurturing and as much hmm. as much care as white l- little girls. That they're seen as as older um, than they are. And you know, int- intro group we do some of it our- ourselves. You know, we talk about little man, right? We call our, our little boys little man, right? Instead of uh, letting them be a little boy, right? Um, right, right. You know, man up man up, right? Uh, you better not cry. You know, these are all terms that, you know, through my years, I heard other people, you know, say, uh, you've got to be strong. And part of that is knowing that the world that they're going to experience is not going to be one that um, coddles or, or nurtures. And so there, so many parents start from the very beginning to say, this is going to be your reality, this harsher world. And that's what I'm going to show you so that you can survive in that harsher world. But then that, of course, does that create harsher people? I mean, you know. Um, well, it, it, it can create broken. I think it creates broken people. Yep, I think it yep. creates. I, yeah, I think that's what it creates. I think it creates people who have a difficult time, you know, be, be, being whole, holding, you know, holding those emotions in. And, um, you know, we talk sometimes about, um, you know, post-traumatic stress um, syndrome, but we also talk about um racial trauma and how racial trauma can play out like post-traumatic stress syndrome. So yes, you get the outcomes that look like um, what the, like the outcomes that we get, you know, more, more domestic violence, um, more activity that uh, puts people in the, in the, puts black people in the criminal justice system and, you know, all of those kinds of things. And it's so complex. That's what I try to lay out in the book, the complexity of all of this. It's not so simple as to say, you know, uh, Black person committed the crime. Okay, do the time. Well, the time is going to be more, you know, typically. Uh, And we see this play out, right? We see how we see the police brutality that's disproportionately um, targeted to uh, to black people. So, Mary Frances, I know that I've got listen. I mean, you're talking to one of the most liberal people you're going to find. And you're speaking on a very progressive radio station. So right now I know there are white color people listening and they're asking, what can I do? How can I help with this? How can I help with black fatigue? How can I help change the way America is right now? And um, I'm going to give you about a minute and a half to do that, and we're going to have to take a break, but we can come back and you can do more after that, okay? So okay. what would you say to the, the white people listening right now? Um, get educated. Do your own education around the history, around the policies, practices, laws that are um, that, that are just that are laws that disproportionately impact in a negative way um, black people. Speak up and speak out. I talk with so many white people, good white people who want to to uh, be an anti-racist, if you will, but they will admit that they don't say anything. They don't challenge the system. Um, so that's what's really important. So ask questions. Have have some fearlessness in you, um, and self educate. And you know, so when I, you and I are in the same business, and when I speak with white audiences, one of the things I remind them is this is not the kind of thing you you go and you ask a black person to to stand up in the room and and explain what does it mean to be black. This is where mm-hmm. you you actually. You know, Wikipedia is a great thing. It can tell you everything you need to know about Juneteenth and the Tulsa race riots and and about enslaved humans. And so white people just need to go and do that work, right? Exactly. Okay. Well, listen, uh, uh, your book, Black Fatigue, How Racism Erodes the Mind, Body, and Spirit, where can people find it if they want to buy it, which I hope they're going to do? Uh, wherever they buy their um, wherever they buy their books, you know, Amazon or and, and also I would um, I want them to also 
um, patronize the um, the independent bookstores. So for sure, that's really important. The small bookstores and the small black owned bookstores. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. We want to support uh, independent bookstores for sure. Okay. Well, listen, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about your book. And then I want to talk about that executive order uh, that uh, the Trump administration has put out. Okay. All right. All right, everyone. We've been speaking with Mary Frances Winters, the uh, author of Black Fatigue, How Racism Erodes the Mind, Body, and Spirit. Get it on Amazon, Kindle, or Nook, or particularly at your independent bookstores. When we come back, we'll speak a little bit more with Mary Frances. Thanks. More than ever, we are being faced daily with a topic of human mortality. And for many people, estate planning has been top of mind. Getting your estate planning done now can be easy and cost-effective. Shroman Law offers virtual options for initial consultations so that new clients can safely initiate the process. With many facing uncertain financial situations, Shroman Law also offers affordable fees for legal documents. Learn more at shromanlaw.com. That's S-C-H-R-O-M-E-N-Law.com. Better Futures Minnesota's Reuse Warehouse has big news. We have a brand new online store. Check out reusebfm.com. This is a great way to see what we carry in the Reuse Warehouse. Appliances, building materials, kitchen and bath fixtures, lighting, flooring, lumber, heating and cooling items. Don't miss the beautiful benches and COVID safety shields that are hand-built using reclaimed wood from our deconstruction projects. Check out ReuseBFM.com. That's ReuseBFM, as in Better Futures Minnesota, .com. Hello, this is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 2 to 3 p.m. Many listeners know that I train on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming to diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on equity and dismantling racism. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change how they see the world. And now I'm doing all of my work online so everyone can attend regardless of where you're located. For more information, go to elliekrug.com. Thank you. I look forward to hearing from you. Even though these are challenging times, All Energy Solar is still committed to providing you a cost-effective, environmentally friendly energy system through their zero-contact protocol. Solar remains a great value and long-term investment, but some of the incentive programs will be expiring soon. All Energy Solar can walk you through the entire process. They can evaluate your property by phone or webinar and can even complete preliminary design work without visiting your home. So start saving on your energy bill today and visit allenergysolar.com. And we're back on AM 950, LE 2.0 Radio. Uh, you're listening to me, Ellie Krug, and I've been interviewing and speaking with Mary Frances Winters, the author of Black Fatigue, How Racism Erodes the Mind, Body, and Spirit. And Mary Frances, when we took our break, we were talking about how white people, white color people, um, can do more. And one of the things we talked about is about self-educating. You know, I think that for many white people, this is also overwhelming, although I don't know about you, but I mean, I've been doing a lot of work uh, since George Floyd's murder. And I have to tell you, I have been finding such a large demand from people for anti-racist training, um, a large demand, uh, 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 particularly from elected officials that I've been speaking with in training, about how can they first identify what is structural racism, how can you identify it, and how can you get past it? What are you finding in your work, particularly since George Floyd's murder? Absolutely. Just an explosion in the work. I've been doing this work now for 36 years. The Winters Group has been in business doing this work for 36 years. And I must tell you that I am frustrated that so many people have come forward, so many leaders and organizations saying, we didn't know. <laughs> we didn't know that racism was still such an issue in this country. We didn't know the history. Come on, folks, where you been? I love it. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, all it took was to just uh, open your eyes. But, you know, I mean, I people don't like to be uncomfortable. This stuff is very you know, um, disquieting for people, you know, particularly people who hold the levers of power, which are usually older white color men. But, um, and so let's talk about 
what the Trump administration is trying to do. So you alluded to the order. Can you go on and explain it? Talk about the uh, order. Yeah, so there are actually two orders. And the first order that came out restricted, prohibited government agencies from continuing their anti-racism work. The second order that came out a couple of weeks after that first order restricted, prohibited any government contractors from conducting what they call anti-American divisive training. That would be the discussion you and I are having right now, right? Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Well, and, and, so, and the problem with the second order is that, as I'm seeing on my end, anybody who gets government funds is interpreting that to mean that they're a government contract, federal government Correct. contractor. So, Correct. So we're... So um, we're seeing, I'm seeing on my end, you know, like schools, like, you know, certainly governmental agencies are just like, we, we're, we're, we like you, Ellie, but we don't, we, we don't think we can have you. What are you finding? So I don't do a lot of government work. Um, I never have in the 36 years I've been in business. And the reason I don't do a lot of government work is because of just these kinds of things, uh, but also because um, it's just, there's just a lot of red tape to do, to right. do business with the right. government. So most of yeah. my clients are corporate and the corporate world really can't back away from this now because they came out in June uh, with all of these statements of solidarity. They came out and said, we're going to do anti-racism training. They came out and said, you know, we're going to prioritize um, hiring um more black people into leadership roles. And so the government is now coming out and targeting those companies as well who have been um, vocal since June with their statements of solidarity and what they're going, you know, what they're going to do. And many of these companies, you know, practically every large corporation somehow um, does business with the government, right? Sells, right. sells something, has some connection um, to the government. But I'm finding that for the most part, um, you know, most of the organizations that I'm working with are, are, are going to uh, move forward. And I think that's what we have to do to come to combat this. But when I read the executive, not but and when I read the executive order, I say there is not much in the executive order that we really can't do. The executive order says that we will not propagate anything that says that one race is inherently better than the other. We teach just the opposite. So we don't do that. It says that we will um, not stereotype certain groups. Um, we do just the opposite. Stereotyping, we say in our work, is not a good thing because it's a narrow description, a narrow characterization mm -hmm. of any particular group. Um, our work pr promotes inclusion, which the executive order says is okay. We've always promoted inclusion. It really is about fairness and justice, which is a part which which is inherent in our constitution. And when a company finds that they are not being fair and just, they should take care of that. And so companies are finding that they have not been fair and just as it relates to black people. Let me give you an example of Wells Fargo. In August, Wells Fargo was fined uh, or, or agreed, uh, there was a settlement of $7.8 million. The same government agency, the OFCCP, the Office of Federal Contract Compliance, fined um, Wells Fargo and said you must pay $7.8 million because they found that, in fact, they did discriminate against black people in employment. Fast forward to today, which that was just a month ago, so we don't have to fast forward very far. They're now saying, because the CEO of Wells Fargo said that they were going to put a priority on hiring um, more blacks in leadership because they were you know, right. uh, deficient there. And now the OFCCP is saying that's discriminatory. Right. So on the one hand, they find them for being discriminatory. And on the other hand, they're saying they can't fix the discrimination. Well, and I, you know, I don't know about you, but the sense I have from my client field is that everybody's in kind of a standby mode. Um, going to wait to see what happens on November 3rd, because you and I both know that if, um, if uh, Biden gets in, uh, these orders that you just spoke about are going to be rescinded probably within the first day. Um, that would be my guess. It, it would be, but even if, um, well, when, I should say when, <laughs> when we get a new administration, there's a lot that they can do between November and January. Oh, gosh, don't even, don't get me started on that. <laughs> <laughs> so that would be my fear. So so my, my approach to it is not to sit back, but my approach is to uh, hit the um, executive orders head on by saying our work complies yeah. with the executive order. No, and I, you know, I think that that's a really great approach. 
Um, I'm on the executive committee here of a thing called the Twin Cities Diversity and Inclusion Roundtable, which mm-hmm. is a collection of about 200 uh, DE&I diversity and in, in, in equity, equity and inclusion professionals. Um, and I will tell you, there are people that are hurting here. You know, and, and I appreciate the fine um, reading of the executive orders, but it's more the idea about the government coming in and wanting in one way or another to chill, to chill the work that you and I do, to chill the work around trying to deconstruct structural racism. I mean, it's just, it's mind blowing that you would have the government, you know, I mean, what's next? I mean, they're going to start putting people in jail, you know, that type of thing. And, and, and are they going to, you know, I mean, I just, we could we can go down that long road, and I, I don't want to go down that road because I want today to be a good day. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we I think we I think we have to um, stand strong, and we have to speak up, and we have to not sit back and wait, and sit back to wait to see what's going to happen. I think we need to defy the executive order, and there are many. Or oh. um, I know that I know that the corporate world is developing their own um, statements. Um, against those executive orders. And I know that I can't name my clients because I, you know, I have non-disclosure agreements with them, but I have many very, very large corporate clients who are going full steam ahead and are not paying any attention to those executive orders because um, their, the values of their company that they have espoused and that they have stated uh, are that they are for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and that they will create a fair and just um, a fair and just inclusive environment. And in those places where they are not, they're rectifying that. And I think that they're willing right. to, to take the, um, whatever happens, the consequences for doing that. All right. Well, Mary Francis, I could talk to you all day, but we've got to go. I want to thank you very much for being on LE 2.0 radio. I've been speaking to Mary Francis winners, author of black fatigue, how racism erodes the mind, body, and spirit. Thanks so very much for being on the show, Mary Francis. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me and best of luck in your work as well. Okay. You know, keep up the good fight. Thanks. You too. All right. And big thanks to our sponsor, Better Futures Minnesota, and to my producer, Brett Johnson, and listeners. I got it done live. I love it. I'll be back live some other day. Thanks so very much for tuning in and participating. We'll be back next week with our show regularly at 2 o'clock on Mondays. Bye.